0: Welcome to this week's Money & Investing. This week, we're going to look at the subject of diversification. How important is it in your investment portfolio? Does it actually work? Or is it predicated on a model of yesteryear? This and more we'll cover in the broadcast. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money & Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter. And as always, my faithful offsider
1: and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. B. Looking awfully dapper today. Nice shirt, same as mine. I want to get your opinion on something. It's pretty similar, same brand. Sponsors product. sponsored. thank you, Polo Ralph Lauren. Your opinion on something here, Mr. B. Now, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, controversy about this in sort of recent years, and that is the whole notion of diversification. How important is it, and Mm. is it really worth it?
0: Gee, that's a big, broad-based question, and I'm sure we'll get a fair share of comments on this. Look, diversification, don't put all your eggs in one basket. In terms of advice, is as old as the hills, and look, it's very good advice. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, But you can also in the uh, attempt, I guess, of spreading out and avoiding risk, create more problems for yourself than you actually originally intended. So diversification for the sake of it. I don't know. Let's explore it.
1: Mythbusters 101. Here we go. Well, to start us off, what is diversification if we're talking stocks specifically? Hmm.
0: Okay. so, you know, on a more holistic scale, you might talk about your asset allocation. So you can have some money in cash, bonds, property, stocks, managed funds, super. Uh, and maybe some collectibles would be a, yeah, a perfect portfolio of diversified uh, resources. Um, however, um, if we just talk about it and contain this today for the benefit of the stock market. Yeah, a diversified portfolio is where you have your money in the stock market, but you're holding you know, a number of different stocks. So you don't have all your eggs effectively, of course, in one basket. You know, back in the day, if you're talking to someone about a diversified portfolio, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they'd say, well, you should probably have 50 or 60 shares to spread out your risk, which, you know, on the surface is very, very good
1: advice. 50 or 60 shares is a pretty big holding. So there comes the the the, the challenge of having, needing a lot of money as hmm. such to be able to have that level.
0: Well, you look at the demographic shifts in the stock market, of course, 50 or 60 years ago, people investing in the stock market typically were the big end of turn. It wasn't something that was available to retail investors. And of course, these days, Many, many more retail investors are in the marketplace, which is fantastic to see. And as, as such, I guess the approach to the market needs to change. So if we wind it forward to the 80s, there was a model that was put together by some pretty smart individuals, probably smarter than you and I, just. Um and, and that was a model that was called CAPM, the Capital Asset Pricing Model. I remember going through this at uni, oh, as, as I'm sure you do pretty pretty hardcore from a stats point of view Uh, essentially what it effectively is looking to do is to say look if you want to spread out your risk what is the optimization of the number of holdings to reduce the systemic risk within markets so effectively if, if, if companies underperform how many companies do you need to hold to, to to manage out that
1: one company risk and just to stop you there ab for our listeners out there systemic risk being company specific risk not market risk is that what you mean there mm.
0: so systemic risk would be more along the lines of you know if there's if there's say for example you know um Uh, a company has a chemical spill or something like that or there's a scandal involving the CEO or whatever it may be. Sure. uh, And the idea is how can you insulate yourself from that? And that theory sort of spits out a holdings volume of about 15, 16 shares is now deemed as being diversified. Of course, that's not 15 or 16 companies in um, buy now, pay later or mining. It's <laughs> spread across a number of sectors. And that's the theory that pretty much most funds management businesses operate from these days. Um, is it a good one or not? I don't know. I mean, if you take the ultimate in diversification, which is the index itself. So if you take the ASX 200, the, the whole top, market. Two, top 200 companies in Australia, if you take the S&P 500, Um, Take the Dow Jones, the top 30, Um, if you compare the performance of active fund managers, that's a fund manager that's looking to take a view on the market and say, look, we like this sector and we like this sector, so we're going to favour these and not necessarily have exposure to those. Most active fund managers, about 67% of active fund managers actually underperform the index
1: on an annual basis. That's crazy and that poses the question, why would you use one and why would you be diversified if that's what they're producing?
0: If you you can pick a good fund manager then you might do quite well, but that's also rather like the chocolate wheel, which one's going to be good this year because as we all know from ASIC's client notices, Past performance is no guarantee of future performance. So, yeah, it does become a very, very difficult area for for investors that are looking to get stuck into markets. And I guess the biggest argument from my perspective against a, 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 a diversified portfolio for the sake of diversification, you know, if you've got a view on markets, you should always trade your view. You might be wrong, but if you don't trade your view, you'll never forgive yourself if you were right and you didn't get enough exposure to it. So perhaps a, a, a constructive portfolio at the moment is going to include BHP and Fortescue. Iron ore price has been going ballistic not over the last couple of days, but nonetheless has been going very, very strongly. You know, you're going to have a couple of the big banks, Commonwealth Bank now you know, at all-time high. so it's a good proxy for the Australian economy, which is pumping. Uh, you might have Woolies in there from a diversification point of view from a grocer to be in a different sector. But if you're running a truly diversified portfolio, why would you include stocks like AMP or Telstra in there that, you know, on the long term? I mean, Telstra's had a bit of a run recently, but nonetheless, over the long term, has been a perennial underperformer. And you're just saying, look, Mitch, for the sake of it, I need to get some different color in this mix. I'm just going to put those in to spread out my risk and diversify. I know they're terrible businesses,
1: but, you're good but good I'm going to put them anyway. in there
0: to diversify anyway. It makes no sense to add rubbish into the pile to reduce your risk because you're just actually adding more risk in by including rubbish in your portfolio
1: which goes against the whole premise of why you're initially diversified which right? is to make money <laughs> so uh, th- that poses the question there is that if you've got a diversified portfolio of 15 or 16 stocks mm. which on the aussie market is you can I mean you can spread yourself pretty thin with that mm. right there's not a huge amount of a stratosphere mm. that we can choose from yeah Those stocks are all correlated with the market anyway. They all pretty much move in conjunction with one another.
0: Well, you get a big pullback in the US market, for example, and the rising tide lifts all ships and a falling tide takes them down. So, you know, you end up with that big move in the US, the dog wags the tail, we drop on the back of it, and and you're kind of down. And, and, you know, if you take a sort of step back in the funds management space, and Warren Buffett will be the classic example, the world's most famous investor, arguably the world's most successful investor. Uh, and a huge exponent for a diversified portfolio. Yet, if you look at Berkshire Hathaway, I think something like 42, I could be wrong on this, but it's about 42% of their holdings, $120 billion is just in Apple shares.
1: That's not diversification. That's a pretty
0: concentrated, yeah, that's a fairly committed position, okay? They've been in as early investors and they've made an absolute mozza from that, which then underlines the argument, if you've got a view on a particular stock or sector and you feel it's going to perform, well, then you should follow that view and, and, and commit to it not in a I'm a holding one stock but you know have a fairly aggressive uh, what's called an overweight position toward it you know take afterpay for example in the Aussie market you know over the last 14 15 months if you'd have had a portfolio look I've got a, a strong view on buy now pay later so I'm going to put you know 20% of my holdings pretty committed position just an afterpay, you'd be laughing because it's been one of the stronger performing stocks in the ASX. And then you might argue that, well, yeah, but from diversification perspective, you should probably have some Qantas and Flight Centre in there as well, because they're also in the market. But they're in sectors which, given the economic conditions and and the embargo on global travel and so on are companies that are really going to struggle. So it makes no sense to include them from a diversification point of view. You want to be including a diversified portfolio of stocks that have got a tailwind that are performing well and have a committed position to them. That's all I would suggest is where you're going to get some outperformance.
1: And that sort of leads me to my next question on that, which is really good information. Mm. If you're just getting started, AB, which a lot of our clients are, and you're working with, say, five or 10 grand pretty, mm. in a small account size. Great place to start. Great mm. place to start. But what I'm, what I'm asking, I guess, is you have to be pretty much fully committed, right? Because mm. you're only going to be in one or two trades with that.
0: Well, that's right. If you're holding direct equities, you're probably going to be in one or maybe two positions. You can't have five positions of two grand because even though you've got a spread out of risk, by the time you take into your transaction fees, which are paper thin these days anyway, but nonetheless, it is a consideration. You know, even if the share price moves, yeah, you know, a reasonable amount net, you're not really going to be making much out of it. And so I guess this is part of the reason why Exchange traded funds have done particularly well. Um, and that is that they're just designed um, to be either a diversified portfolio of shares or an index tracking fund, better yet, where you're just going to mirror the performance of the market. You don't have to think too hard, you can put your money in and you're going to match market performance. You're avoiding the 67% of fund managers that underperform, um, although you're also avoiding yep, the 33% that outperform. Uh, and you're just taking that middle of the road position, which on the grind tends to do quite well.
1: It's it it works pretty well in theory. Mm. And I know one of the other things I also learned at university that long term, it's basically impossible, impossible, excuse me, to outperform the market anyway. Mm. And I know we've done a podcast, for example, on micro investing, which is a great way to get exposure to ETFs, albeit with low account balance. Mm.
0: That is a a superb way for people that are getting started, that are right at that very sort of, they're not even at step one of the process, they're at sort of point one of the first (laughs) step of the process, because it's an autopilot way of saving. And we've spoken about this previously, can't endorse it enough, great place to start. However, um, one of the things to consider is that all of this discussion about finding stocks is all about being able to forecast, or let's just call it what it is, guess, which stocks are likely to outperform. And so you're overlaying a view which if you're very skilled and crafted at what you do there's a good chance you can yeah pick out some pretty good winners. But that's if you're skilled and pretty good at what you do. And if is a very very small word but it has substantial consequences. So you, if you're right you're going to make a lot of money. If you're wrong you're not you're probably going to lose a lot. And I don't like uncertainty in my life. I think certainty and, and reducing the variables of trying to guess direction and replacing that with something that brings with it a lot more certainty is something that certainly sits well with me. And given the message that we're you know, very active in the marketplace promoting, sits very well with our audience too. And that is, why not remove the need to guess direction
1: and get paid anyway? It's that old adage, right? Direction versus certainty in the stock market. And that layer of certainty is what we do through selling call options. So let's chat a little bit about how that works, AB.
0: Look, I think, you know, one of the key things is that the whole strategy we're talking about isn't based on a proviso of holding a stock and watching it go up in value over time. It's holding stock for a finite period of time and being paid to hold that stock. Now you're getting paid for a period of time passing by and it doesn't matter you know, whether you smoke the front lawn or you're on some other form of hallucinogens <laughs> or not. I think we probably all agree that time passes by, that is a guaranteed event that's happening. And if you can work out a strategy that enables you to be pa- paid, for time passing by. You're getting paid for a certain event happening. And that's one of the things that quite early on in my career has dragged me into the particular trading strategies that I like to use in the derivative space, in the options world, because I'm getting paid for a certain event, which is time passing by. And if, if the share price moves up a bit, that's the cream on the cake. If it stays flat, moves up a little bit, I'm getting paid guaranteed my money. So that's where my value add is coming from in this particular strategy. And I'm removing that need to have to guess where the market's going to go. And over time, and it's not my opinion, if you look at, say for example, on the Australian market, the Buy and Write Index, which is effectively what this strategy is, over pretty much any period of time, you're gonna see the Buy and Write Index actually outperforms the ASX 200. So it's not me that's saying it's probably a better way to approach, the statistics themselves show that over virtually every discrete period of time you can look at.
1: Is that an ETF you can invest in and buy right in You against? can
0: indeed, you can potentially buy into that. A friend of mine uh, was running a fund that just specializes in that as well. Oh, there you um, go. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just another way of skinning the cat. And, and, and look, it may be that if we if we dive a little deeper on diversification, you you might have exposure to diversified strategy. So you might have, okay, here's my portfolio. We're just gonna pick an arbitrary chunk of coin, $100,000 just to keep the maths easy. Out of that, I'm gonna have 40% exposed to buy and rights, which is my non-directional get paid for time passing by. I'm gonna have 30% exposed to high conviction investment ideas you know i'm a big believer in story x behind company y um you know it could be afterpay to use an aussie example it could be something like fortescue as it brings on track um you know green hydrogen and if anyone's going to do it it's going to be twiggy you know he's got the means he's got the motivation and he's gone out in public saying what he's going to do and there's a man that will deliver as he's continued to do now with Fortescue Metals. So it might be that you've got some high conviction type um, views on certain stocks. I'm holding Fortescue just as an aside. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the. the, the, the so you, you want to have that in your portfolio. So you've got your 40% in your non-directional, you've maybe got maybe 30% in those high conviction trades, and then your balance uh, you might have in an exchange traded fund or even an index tracker, for example, or, or maybe overseas in the US market. So now we're talking about diversification, not in terms of shares, but in terms of strategies
1: around shares. And this is Asset Allocation 101, right? And this is what we specialize in. It's what we do for a living.
0: Indeed. And I don't want this to get too complex for people. You're head spinning in your Venn diagrams. This is the universe (laughs) and this is the subset. And then I've got this dot within. That's not what this is about. It's just applying a level of common sense. And I always figure that the, you know, people talk about the PUP test and we often talk about the litmus test, but there's the, the, the lying in bed test as well. And if you're lying in bed thinking about your investments and you're sort of a little uncomfortable about it, you need to shuffle and move. That asset allocation mix around that to me is true diversification you know so yep yeah, you might have some property and within your property you might have some commercial residential um, your primary place of residence perhaps maybe you fractional ownership with some of the new technology that's coming out now I think BRICS is one of the ones that's there and you know there's uh, there's been a number of them you know, over time where you can own fractional property and then within your portfolio of shares you might have your non-directional stuff with what we do, it might be announcement trading. You might have a 10% allocation to, okay, when a company is announcing its p this is where we use a low-risk, highly aggressive strategy to profit from that move in the shares. 10% allocation toward that. And then, you know, 30% in high conviction, and, and then maybe a little bit less coming out into those ETFs you might be trading. And it's just a question of setting those pieces on the chessboard to suit you. The notion of having to have 50 or 60 stocks makes no sense in today's world. You know, and, uh, and, it, and, and it is a legacy from the industry of the past. Um, you know, you think about you know, 50 years ago, your average stock market participant, male, middle-aged, high net worth, happy to pay two, 2.5% two brokerage fee on a transaction, buy and hold, and, and they're gonna have you know, a, a, a litany of stocks. But the, the world has caught on. So there are ETFs or index tracking funds that probably weren't around back in those days. But also when people start to crunch the numbers, as the smart bots did when they came up with CAPM, That period, you know, through the 70s and 80s, in terms of financial engineering, w- was an incredible growth period. The options market, for example, like was born in 19- 1974. Um, you know, that's when that model was conjured up and being able to use computers to, 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 to test and simulate and backtesters, and this is what we do in our day-to-day, we backtest all our strategies now, um, you know, was not even around, it was embryonic, and now it's the norm. And so you can say, look, 15, 16 holdings is a diversified portfolio, but that's if you just want a plain vanilla, diversified, only make money if the market goes up portfolio. If you want more than that, and you want to stack the deck a bit in your favour, instead of the if the market goes up bit, why don't you just put a line through that and say, I want to get paid for time passing by. And now I've removed that directional bias, which 67% of fund managers can't get right anyway. And I can plonk the flag down and say, this is what I want to do. I want to get paid for time passing bias at certain event. So I've got stock exposure, ETF if it goes up. I've now got my non-directional exposure. I've got a bit of high conviction stuff there, which is the fun stuff, the things that you're genuinely interested in. And heck, I've got a little bit of color over here with some you know, fancy derivatives footwork that we do.
1: It all sounds pretty good, AB, and the question I'd like to ask you on that is, as you mentioned, it's like a chess board, but most people out there don't know how to play chess, so where are we learning all this stuff?
0: Okay, that, that, that's a really good point. I mean, most people's approach to investing is that they're playing checkers or drafts. What do we call it in Australia? I always used to be drafts at home.
1: What, what is drafts? Drafts. Drafts. What yeah. is drafts? checkers checkers okay yeah. so you call it Check- checkers, right? checkers yeah. my grandmother right <laughs> I'm going point here for a minute
0: my grandmother i i remember she I spent a heap of time my grand she's obviously dead now and uh, and 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 she was just unbeatable like she was just really? undefeated champion forget about floyd mayweather she was a weapon when it came to draft wow so being smart i thought scores learning to play chess right and she got wind of it and she she worked in a charity shop and uh it's always funny that people with no money always put the put the biggest amount of effort into helping charities earn our money, which she worked in a charity shop. And she she learned that. She got a book on how to play chess. So I've gone around there one weekend, right, let's not play drafts, Nan. Let's go and play chess. And she flogged me at that too. So she oh. retired, literally undefeated.
1: Surprise, surprise. Yeah.
0: So I don't like the idea of playing drafts. That brings me back to being on the losing side <laughs> of the equation from when I was a, a kid with my grandmother. Big love to my grandmother. Amazing lady. Um, but learning to play chess certainly gives you that bit more flexibility because instead of... You know, in drafts or checkers, all you can do is move forward one or you can jump over something. It's a unidirectional play, at least until you're kinged, right? Whereas in in chess, you can jump over diagonally, move three spaces, you can hop over stuff. You've got so much more flexibility. So I'd always encourage anybody that's looking at markets to at least get started with checkers or drafts. It's a place you can start, but don't stay there.
1: Time to graduate. Graduate at some point, up, right? learn
0: to play chess because all of a sudden this board game. Look, and you've got to think about it. Chess and draughts or checkers, whatever you want to call the thing, they're the same board. There's 64 squares, eight eights, right? That's it. 64 squares on there, but the journey that you can have, the flexibility that you can have playing chess versus checkers makes it an infinitely more sophisticated game. And that's where your trading and investing should be. It doesn't mean to say you've got to go to uni and learn capam. It doesn't mean to say you've got to do all this portfolio theory stuff. Just break it down into bite-sized chunks. Get something that's going to work based on a certainty. Covered cause, cash on demand, perfect strategy for that. Add some high conviction stuff in there so you're building your knowledge base out. And we've talked so many times in our podcast series about the litmus test. Find companies that are going to be part of the future. They're the ones that you want in that high conviction area. Have something that's going to stretch you in terms of your learning journey. And that might be a pure derivative strategy, straddle's being an example, and we've had terrific success in that space. And then the balance of it... Before you, If you can't trust yourself with all of the kitty, whack it into an ETF, or better yet, back it into an index tracker, because you're going to outperform 67% of fund managers if you do that anyway. All of a sudden, you've got a diversified portfolio, but not in the way where you've got direct shares. You've got diversification across strategies. You've got diversification across timeframes. You've got diversification across directional versus non-directional. And you've got diversification from stuff you know and stuff that's passive, to stuff that's stretching you and learning you to grow. And for anyone that's on that journey, you know, from being a micro investor and, and using Raise and, and, and so on, where they've just started to save, put a bit of money into ETFs, learn then how to back that money out and, and stretch and grow and learn some of these new strategies. And when you do that, it's financially liberating because A, you can make money when you need to, B, you're not at the behest of a fund manager that underperforms the market and sure. takes a meaty fee, and C, it's and rewarding. You sit back and look at it and go, man, I feel good about myself because I've been able to plant my garden and turn it into fruit and veg and feed my family. And that's effectively what we're talking about here. And I'm not reliant on the weather to do it.
1: AB, that is an unreal way to cap off this broadcast. And I think we can leave you with the final question to finish us off for the day. Diversification, the old school diversification, is it really worth it? Probably not.
0: Well, Mitch, if you want to talk about old school, let's put it this way, right? (laughs) Old, you see Mitch, looking at the past is an interesting thing. Old school diversification versus the current world and for our listeners and viewers out there that are following us on this, imagine if you had to revert to a black and white portable TV with a knob you had to turn to tune in and maybe a a coat hanger at the top to try and get a signal or your smart HD 5K 95 inch surround sound. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Which one would you prefer to watch something on these days? The new one and there's not many people even for the sake of being vintage would want to be squinting at the fuzzy black and white and that's what we're talking about between old theory of investing and what's going on today and things do move in a direction and they continue to get better and sure markets are more volatile now because of it because people use leverage and all different things and news flow is quicker so your skill set and your tools need to move to keep up with that otherwise you're playing a game on you know 50s technology you're just going to get slaughtered
1: Makes a whole lot of sense. A hell of sense, excuse me. Thank you very much, AB. My
0: pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. Good to be on. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to seeing you on next week's show.